um, ARC funds. That, uh, I need to censor myself. Um, <laughs> Not in overtime, you don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> overtime is really for entertainment purposes only. Welcome to the Financial Independence Garage, where we share the tools to improve your finances and unfold the roadmap to financial independence. And it is the money mechanic with you as always. And we have The Economist uh, on the show tonight. And The Accountant is strangely missing because he's trying to add to his real estate portfolio. So we support that, but he may jump in and join us a little later on the show. We also have a guest with us tonight to join us in our lovely banter and beer drinking fun. It is Corey from Ontario. Welcome to the show, Corey. Nice to have you here. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Now, I'll get you to tell your own backstory, but just to fill in the listeners a little bit of how we met, it was through the online Choose FI Canada Facebook group, which uh, has a, is a great membership, lots of good discussion in there. And we actually were kind of met through a, an online meetup that there's last year sometime, we're all locked in our houses and everybody's needed a little bit of social interaction. So we got chatting and I thought your story is really interesting because like myself, you are in the trades. So we're going to talk tonight about the, the choice to go into trades and how that looks a little bit different about getting to financial independence and you know some of the obstacles of being in the trades as far as like we talked about uh, having toys, spending money on dirt bikes, you know, snowmobiles, whatever it is. It kind of seems to go hand in hand. We'll get into that. And we're also going to talk about because you and I are both car guys. And that's an interesting side bit of FI too, because we've talked about how you spend on what you value, but uh, transportation is the second biggest cost. So we need to dig into that a little bit and maybe pass on some of our car knowledge to to the listeners tonight and a bit of our passion too, I guess. So, but before we get into all that, the most important part, why everybody's actually really here is the beer. Is that not correct? Is Did you not say, when I said, come on the podcast, you go, as long as I get to drink some BC beer. And we said, we'll drink Ontario <laughs> beer. <laughs> yeah, we did a switcheroo. Yeah. So I have the Collective Arts, uh, what is it here? It is the Stranger Than Fiction Porter. Economist, what do you have? Oh, we don't have the same one. No. I have the Life in the Clouds DDH IPA. Double now, dry hopped. There we go. That's good choice. Both of I, those are good choices. I know my beer. Okay, you've had <laughs> yeah. these before, Corey? Yeah, I actually have a, uh, did you say Saint of, Saint of Circumstance? I have that one in my, uh, or no, Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction. In my, yeah, I have that in my beer fridge, actually. Nice. Um, but yeah, today I have a fat tug. And nice. I also have awesome. A, uh, awesome. That is like the, well, some would say like the best IPA over here on the island. Maybe even in British Columbia. I won't go, people, ca- I won't go national. I won't go national because I'll get hate mail. <laughs> people would say that though. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a good one. And it was featured in the FI Garage beer tube that I sent out to, I believe it was Mark Seed I sent a fat tug to because he's an IPA guy too. So have you had it before? Or is this the first time? Second time I think I've had it. Oh, yeah. I wanted the first time reaction. but <laughs> Well, you know, it was probably like five years since I've had it. So this will be like a, a fresh, a, a new nice. try. Cheers, Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. That virtual background really hurts you, economist. It hurts the cheersing. I have to basically <clears throat> cheers in front of my face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. That's delicious. I do like a good porter. I don't drink porters very often because they're, uh, there's a lot of flavor in them. But <laughs> Not a flavor guy, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can tell that from all the IPA. <laughs> Who doesn't hate flavor? I mean, yeah. oh, it's the worst. Uh, I, want, I want no flavor in my beer. No, it's good. I like. I, I always find like porters and stouts to me. I mean, I'll drink a Guinness stout anytime because I really like Guinness, but they're a bit more of like a wintry type drink for me. I feel like having a, a nice sort of thick porter. And interestingly enough, like this one is. Uh, it was five and a half percent. A lot of people are like, I can't drink porter because it totally fills me up. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I think an IPA with a higher ABV actually has more calories in it than a porter. What do you think, Corey? Calories, yes. But I guess like a lot of porters are thicker. So maybe it's the thickness. I don't know. I'm not a scientist well. or a chemist. So I don't know <laughs> nah. how this works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, tell us what you are then. Okay, well, I am a uh, a machine tool builder and integrator, which is like a trade that's only really recognized in Ontario. And then uh, I'm also a 
Red Seal Millwright, um, which is like nationally recognized uh, trade, which I got. I was I, right out of high school. I got my machine tool builder uh, apprenticeship, which I think like a lot of kids these days, they don't really consider the trades for whatever reason, like if they're getting good grades in school, people don't push them towards the trades. They're usually pushed towards university. And uh, I got good grades in school. I was an honorable student. I did have a few people pushing me towards university, even though there wasn't really anything that gave me any interest in that, like in that range. I was more, I was always interested in cars ever since I was a kid. So I really, I wanted to be a, a mechanic for years and years and years. And then when people told me about tool and die maker and I discovered machine shop in high school, I kind of realized I was kind of good at it and there's lots of money to be made in, in the trades. So luckily my parents, they, they were very encouraging. My, my dad was an appliance repairman for many years. So, so he kind of pushed me in that direction. It, it's good because I find with with university, typically you end up with a bunch of debt at the end of it, or or you end up having to work a whole bunch while you're in school just to prevent that from happening. And uh, with me, because I've I've always been like a frugal weirdo who just stashes away a bunch <laughs> of money. Um, right out of high school, like working this trade, the way apprenticeships work, you you're you're going to school once a week. And you're you're just working, learning while you're earned. And usually you'll get like two or three raises through the year as your skills improve. And I started out at like 11 bucks an hour. And, and as I got like a dollar, another dollar, like you probably get like $3 worth of raises every year. And I would just take that raise and put it straight towards saving, saving towards like a down payment for a house. And so after four years of doing an apprenticeship, I had my license and uh, well, my parents were planning on moving out of town to Tobermore and they told me I wasn't welcome to come along. So <laughs> get out. luckily, yeah, pretty much. I was, uh, I was, I guess, 21 and uh, I had like 50 grand saved up for a down awesome. on a wow, house. That's a good spot. So it was, I was, I was pretty fortunate and uh, yeah. So I just jumped in on that I did lose my job like a year later because this big recession thing happened in like 2008, 2009. So that's what put me back into, I went back to school through a program in Ontario called Second Career, got my Millwright ticket after a couple of years. They gave me some credit for having this previous ticket that got me into what I'm doing now. So, Yeah, that's, I go ahead, economist, do you want to jump in yeah. there before I go? Well, not to, I don't want to be down on university or anything but <laughs> i knew there'd be a university <laughs> defender here <laughs> you, you mentioned that uh that you get to earn money you know throughout the period you're going to school but not only that you're working towards an actual tangible job whereas if you go to university a lot of the programs you don't know what you're working towards you're just there to yeah. to get a grade really right so yeah, not that there's anything that. wrong with university but it, it's definitely a yeah a plus for the trades program. Definitely don't want to rag on university. Like there's, I'm not trying to do that, but um, yeah, you get I some think real you world were. experience. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, from my own personal experience, I mean, just to share a bit of my backstory as well, it's, it, it kind of resonates with you there as well, Corey. I, I didn't know as soon as you did, like in high school, I didn't take shop classes. I was more on the academic side. I was doing the sciences because, you know, it was like, well, the goal was to get into university, but same thing. I had no clue what I was going to do there. I hadn't found a passion yet. And being single, single mom, money was tight. So I was basically funding my own schooling. And I did a little bit of college after I left high school. And it was the typical thing that a lot of people do, right? You go take some psych courses, some criminology, some geography, you know, the general studies. It's like, I'm doing general studies. What kind of job am I going to get from general <laughs> studies? <laughs> and I happened to be working at a furniture store. And like you, I'd always been into cars. My, my dad loved motorsports. Him and my grandfather went to karting in in uh, the Channel Islands where I was born, and you know, so there was there was that kind of mechanical side to the family growing up. 
young uh, with a single mom, it was always put on me to attempt to fix things. Not often did I succeed, but sometimes I did. So, But I'd never really put that together with what my career was going to be. And the guy I was working for at the furniture store, he kind of said to me, he said, well, you know, you've taken some college courses and that's fine, but where do you see yourself? Like, what, what do you fit into? What do you like, what do you enjoy doing? And it, and it was, you know, building, creating, fixing, troubleshooting. Troubleshooting was the number one thing that I really like to do, right? And that's probably why I really love this sort of finance and, and getting into that now, because a lot of discussing how to invest properly and doing that, it's a bit of a troubleshooting exercise that's kind of personal to all of us. But anyway, not to get too far off track here, I, I got into... Uh, I did electronics first, and then I got into aircraft electronics, and then I did aircraft maintenance. And it it kind of, it was like you said, your story is the same as you get out, you're an apprentice, you're earning money, you haven't sunk a ton. I know the fees have gone up for the program now, but back then it was, I was student loaned, but I owed 15 grand. Well, that wasn't terrible because my first job was right away out of school. It was for, you know, I think it was 15 or 16 bucks an hour. And, you know, this is 20 years ago, right? So that's pretty good money without a lot of debt, just like you said. And in this FI community, I noticed there's another, you're not on Twitter, but there's, um, I think it's Findependence40. He's a, an auto mechanic in Manitoba or Ontario. He'll correct me on that, I'm sure. Um, but we don't hear a lot of representation from the trades in the FI community. You know, the typical stereotype is the the tech bro or the uh, software engineer, like millennial revolution. And there are like really high paying salaries, but they're a long road to get there. Right. Where you like for us, it was like, boom, you're earning money right away. But what are the downfalls of that? And I think that's the interesting part, because if we know, if we knew what we know now <laughs> about getting to financial independence, what would we have done differently, you know, when you started your career? Because one of the things I see in the trades is people start making good money right away. And they're with like-minded people that are into, you know, whether it be cars or dirt bikes or, you know, those kind of very expensive type hobbies. What would you have done differently? What are kind of some of the pitfalls of earning a lot at the beginning? Uh, one thing that stands out to me, I wouldn't have spent $800 on a carbon fiber hood for my Dodge Neon. Like, <laughs> it went faster though. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That, that like 20 pound hood only weighed five pounds after the carbon fiber. So yeah. yeah um, <laughs> out of all the things that that's what just always, I'm like, wow, that was, that was kind of dumb. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know, especially with cars, like there's a lot of like, if you're, if you have a bunch of car guy friends, there's a lot of one ups, upsmanship totally. going on. Everybody wants more horsepower. Once somebody gets a supercharger, now you got to throw a turbo on your car and then, oh, he, he lowered his car lower than yours is. So now you got to get the new like coilovers to put on your car. Oh, this guy, he got $4,000 works rims for his whatever. <laughs> and now you got to get something better. And it's like, it's it's a treadmill, just like everything else. You're just trying to keep up with the Joneses or do better. But um, yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing for me. Cars are such a terrible hobby for somebody in the fire, uh, <laughs> the fire pursuits or whatever. But I mean, there are ways that you can make wise decision, decisions. Like for me, like I, I bought a, back in 2012, I bought a 1973 Plymouth Duster and at first glance, it was a terrible decision because it actually wasn't running when I went to go see it. It was supposed to be running. I was supposed to be able to test drive it, but it showed up on a flatbed. And I should have taken that as a warning sign, but then I bought it anyways the next weekend <laughs> when I want. And this was like five hours away in Ottawa, and the car ended up dying on me in Napanee, so I had to get it towed like home. So it seemed like a very terrible decision at the start. But I bought this car for like 10 grand. Uh, I put probably eight grand worth of parts into it. Wow. Okay. I, yeah. I, I sold it for like 15 grand. So like I lost money. I lost about 3,500. I had it for about seven years. Spent about 500 bucks a, a year maintaining it. Yeah. Insurance for historical, for classic cars is super cheap in Ontario. Yep. It's like 140 bucks a, a year. Did you have so, to have another car insured to get that right? 
Yeah. yeah. And there's a bunch of restrictions. You can't drive it to work. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to only use it for like pleasure driving or going to, uh, to car right. shows and stuff. It's a duster. Um, you're just but, trying to peel the tires off the back of it, aren't you? Well, exactly. And it has no, like <laughs> no safety features, no, like no brakes. It doesn't handle, like it's the most dangerous thing on the road. And yet they're only charging you 140 bucks a year to yeah. drive it. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. But um, like all in, like outside of like gas, uh, it really only cost me about 800 to 900 bucks a year. So for me, I don't travel much. Like I've never been to Cuba or Hawaii or anywhere tropical. So for me, that was the the substitute. So I think there are ways to be, you know, sort of cost efficient with, uh, with in the car hobby, at least that's my experience. Yeah. I think, you know, both you and I do our own work on the cars and that's definitely an advantage from our trades background to sort of just, I think one of the things that I notice is that people are fearful of trying it themselves because if it's not something they do at work, it's hard to have the confidence to be like, I'm going to change my brakes. And I'm like, disc brakes could not be easier to change. If you have a jack and you can borrow a few tools from a friend, it's like two bolts that lift the carrier off and you put the, you know, like it's, unless you get a four wheel drive and trying to change the uh, rotor, that might get into a little more uh, fun stuff. But, you know, I think we have that advantage. If you value the hobby, like you said, you did. And, you know, a lot of what we talk about in the FI community is spend on what you value, right? So if you're getting joy from it, and for me, part of the joy of owning cars is, was working on them, right? It's, it's making something work. It's yeah. finding the problems. It's, it's, you know, making it better, making it what you want, but being able to do it yourself saves a ton of money. And maybe one of the tips of this show is if you don't do your own work, that's fine if that's like a choice. I'm not crawling under my car to change my oil. But if you have the means, you're not. Oh, of course I am. Uh, oh, okay, okay, good. Okay, a little, <laughs> a little, a little off topic here, but Corey, because this is a classic Canadian question: Have you ever had to repair your car in a Canadian tire parking lot? <laughs> oh, uh, well, does changing a battery count? Well, yeah, I mean, I've done that in a Costco parking lot because it's a pain in the ass to bring the old battery back next time. But no, yeah, I, that's, yeah. <laughs> I always felt it was like, because there was a Canadian tire in, where I grew up. And so it was like, oh, <laughs> you jack up the car in the Canadian tire parking lot because you're not really sure <laughs> when you take the wheel off, like, what do I need to get this job done properly? Right. So they've put, there's a yeah. ban, there's a ban, there's a sign at our Canadian tire in Victoria that says no automotive work in the parking lot. <laughs> so it's clearly common. I've been there. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. From an FI point of view there, we know that transportation is super expensive. So if you can do some minor jobs yourself, I mean, like you said, changing a battery is not hard. It's bolts yeah. on the top. It's some sort of hold down. You can do it safely. We are so like lucky to have the number of YouTube videos just like yeah. this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about to, start teaching people things yeah well i've always wanted to do a, a, teach, a teach me channel but uh, this is, maybe this is for that. entertainment purposes only buddy yes. there you go thank you for getting that in there um but yeah like i mean when i was starting off you know so the car that i was trying to work on that my single mom had was a 76 plymouth Valari station wagon so you had the you had the cool like uh, dodge <laughs> i had the really crappy dodge that was the one that came after the duster yeah yeah but you know that did the duster that was a v8 in your duster right yeah it was a 340 yeah Yeah. because the because the uh valari had the slant six which was an awesome engine in the 70s the slant six was good bulletproof yeah people that are listening that have opened up a haynes manual before right i'm sure you have two (laughs) the economist right oh yeah yeah. his you know, sorry, I'm getting off topic, but anyway, I opened the Haynes manual and it's like, it's always, uh, assembly is the opposite of removal type thing. And here I am with this <laughs> Valari at 15 years old going, how do I get the door? <laughs> how do I get the door panel apart? And it's just like, you just kind of keep going until it comes apart. Right. Where now it's just yeah. like, boom, YouTube, remove this first, remove this clip, remove this hidden thing. And you're like, oh, there's the window inside, you know? So we're pretty lucky nowadays. It's a lot easier to DIY it than when I fumbled through it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to the uh, the trades journey a little bit from uh, from the FI journey. Tell us a little bit about your actual FI journey and kind of maybe just an overview of where you're at, how things have progressed, and what it's looking like. You don't have to get into any details, but whatever you're comfortable sharing. Okay, sure. 
Uh, well, we could start like as a child, my parents were always very frugal and they gave me a lot of good money habits. Um, they actually were early retirees themselves. They, my dad was 53 nice. and I think my mom was 50 when they retired. And like, like I said, he was an appliance repairman. It's not like he was a CEO of some company making millions of dollars. They had modest yeah. uh, income and modest lifestyle and, uh, managed to, to get out early. And, and I think my grandpa as well did a similar thing. So I guess I could be like technically third generation doing nice. this. So yeah, as far as I go, um, never made a whole lot of money up until like four years ago. I was, I was never really made more than like 50, maybe 60 grand a year, but I maintained a pretty steady savings rate, like about 40% savings rate. Spending usually doesn't go over about I've, over the past like 12 years, I've averaged like 30 grand a year. Wow. That's impressive. Now, just, yeah. just before we keep going here is you are, what's your home situation as far as family wise is just you or wife, kids? It's just a uh, single, uh, do you have a room, a roommate that uh, rents a room for okay. me? Just so from a spending like, perspective. So listeners can be like, okay, that's one person for that price. Not like a yeah, family of four, like right? Family of five. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, no. Um, so yeah, uh, money's always, it's all, it's always come as kind of second nature for me to just watch my spending except for cars. Uh, <laughs> I fly like I'll, I'll be debating on whether to get like the cheapest thing on a menu at a restaurant. But meanwhile, I won't think twice about buying an intake manifold for my duster. You know? it's, it's just, it's kind Run, of silly running but, premium you know, gas. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, as far as where I'm at now, like I, I was basically focusing on my mortgage because like I bought the house when I was 20, 22, lost my job a year later. So I was very like, there was a lot of stress in my life back then and seeing that mortgage, just wanting to get that balance down as quickly as possible. So just in case if I lose my job again, I don't have as, as much to worry about. So that was a big focus in my life for a long time. And and I kept, you know, thinking I really should be saving more for retirement. I was only saving like a hundred bucks a month in my RRSP, but I was only making like 4% a year in this crappy uh, CIBC. Sorry, I shouldn't like plug the actual bank, but (laughs) you know, it was a GIC. I remember those GIC. Oh, you were an active. Okay. Yeah. It was an active mutual fund and had a 2.5 MER. And I was making like four or 5% every year. And it was just, I'm like, well, I'm paying like 5.65 on my my mortgage on interest because I had like a, a fixed rate. I'm like, it makes more sense to just pay this off. People are telling me the interest rates are just going to go up. And uh, so I just focused on that for years and years and years. And then now as I've gotten closer and closer to, to getting that balance to zero, I'm like, man, I, I really need to start doing investing. And, and maybe three years ago, I started listening to the Couch, Canadian Couch Potato podcast and uh, learned more about index funds and all that. I'm like, oh, well, okay, this seems like the good transition. This is what I should be doing. So I scaled back on the mortgage and uh, started getting more aggressive with uh, with the saving in my RSP and TFSA. Well, actually, to be honest, up until this past March, I had like zero in my TFSA, which is a real faux pas in our service. <laughs> but, uh, hey, um, hey, everybody's journey is different. Lots of room. Yeah, I was just, I was so focused on that mortgage, but uh I did as a, a great bit of foresight. I was like, well, you know, if one of those like recession type things happen again, maybe I should get a, a HELOC and then I can just jump in when stuff drops, you know? So amazingly, uh, it happened in March and uh, it was kind of hard to pull the trigger at first because it just it dropped so quick. Yeah. We're thinking, oh, it's going to drop more. It's going to drop more. And then near the end of March, it started going up again. And I'm like, Oh, did I, did I just miss the boat? Do I need to get in now? Like, <laughs> is this a dead cat bounce? Like I'm reading all the articles you shouldn't read. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then I decided, well, maybe I should just, there's a, a financial advisor through our group, our group uh, pension plan at work. Like it's like a direct contribution uh, plan. So I, I emailed him 
told him my whole backstory, what I was considering doing and uh, got on the phone with him. And he's like, yeah, normally I wouldn't tell someone to take, you know, 90 grand out of their HELOC to throw into the market during a pandemic. That's never happened. Like, um, but it sounds like if anyone's going to do it, you stand a good chance of not screwing it up. I'm like, okay, all right. That's, that's all. I just needed a little push. I could, that's all I needed. And and I'm like, okay, what kind of time frame do I need to do this over? And he's like, well, things have been moving quickly. I'm like, well, like, like, should I be just doing like five grand a week? And cause this could be like a two year long thing. And he's like, I don't know. Stuff moves pretty quick. Maybe you should just take like 20%, put it in next week another 20 the next week i'm like that's a lot of money I'm like, that's like 20 grand a week i'm just gonna click buy like I, the, the, the world is on fire right now like yeah. it's the end of the world like really like okay all right sure let's try this and i did it and i was fully prepared like this could be the next great depression and we won't see another recovery for five years but financially i'm pretty stable so i was prepared for that and i got lucky and made like a good good return on that that investment so um yeah that's that's where i'm at now i maxed out my tfsa and now it's like sitting at like almost 100 grand so it's nice. well well done well played and i definitely applaud your ability to handle that from the psychological standpoint because yeah. you, you totally was, oh. Yeah, like I can yeah. just imagine, like I'm I'm the biggest hypocrite because here I am on the FI garage <laughs> for the last two years, and I do like a a pseudo type Smith maneuver, and I have leveraged investments and all the rest of it, but I didn't have the cojones to take that, you know, seventy five k or would have been sixty eight last year, and just boom, hit the market within yeah. March, and you know, hindsight being what it is, of course I should have done it, but you know, I was. I already had my plan. I was following my investment strategy. I continued to buy it all the way through. So it wasn't an urgency, but good for you for pulling the trigger on that and getting it done. I, I did trip up a bit on, on the last, the last buy, the last like 20 grand um, stuff had already bounced up. Like, like, I think I, like I bought in at like an average of like $23 on VQT. Okay. VQT. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it, it was up to like 25 bucks by then. And it had bottomed out at like 21. And I just, I, I clicked buy, And then I'm like, well, maybe I should be allocating some to bonds. Like I was, I had like 10% of my money in bonds before. Maybe I should just do that and just wait for it to drop again. And then, and then I like, so like I sold it and then I bought the next week after it had gone up like 50 cents. I, I kind of danced. And then finally, I just like, no, I'm just like, eroding that money away by like trying to like time things. Yeah. And, and, and I really don't want this like, Oh yeah, this is great. Successful story. It was easy. I just clicked by and now <laughs> I made like 40 grand. Woo. It's easy. You can do it too. Yeah. It's <laughs> just it, wait for the next I pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't want to give people that, that like hope and then have them like blow up their portfolio because they made a bad call. And then they have like a, a big HELOC that they're on the hook for. So yeah, don't don't do that unless you 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 are fully aware of of the the consequences because HELOCs are callable and all that other scary stuff. So yeah. now uh, let's go to the beer fridge and get another beer. How's that fat tug, yeah. by the way? That's good, but it's too full. I don't know why I'm not drinking it quick. You've been talking too much. That, that's the problem. We make yeah. our guests talk so we can do the drinking. Yeah, <laughs> this uh, line in the clouds. This is delicious. Well, it's double dry hop. Dry hopping is the key to a good IPA. Yeah, I yeah, drink yeah, a lot of this. Definitely. How's the nose on that? Because the Fat Tug has an awesome nose because they do a lot of dry hopping in that as well. It's a lot of citra hops in that one. You know what? It's not bad, but I've, it almost has that like older... Oh, this is from... What? Oh, best before March 28th. Okay. so Ooh, getting okay. close. At least it's in a can. Mm. It hasn't gotten skunky from a bottle. Oh, yours looks nice and hazy there, Economist. Show me that one again. Yeah, no, it is. It's, uh, uh, there we go. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. nice and hazy. It is. Collective it's Arts is one of the best breweries in Ontario, I'd say. Nice. All right, we'll be, uh, we're making a run to the beer fridge. We'll be right back. Oh, he's having a trash pounder. Well, we're back and we have fresh beers. So that's awesome. We should thank Corey for this round. Oh yeah. Yeah. We appreciate it. We do appreciate it. And 
although you did not send me this, the magical FI Garage Beer Tube delivered me a Two <laughs> Flags IPA from Dominion City Brewing in Ottawa. So thanks, Blair. I'm still drinking your beer tube, even though somehow Corey bought this beer for me, but we won't get into that. That was a collective <laughs> arts buy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it says Two Flags is an assertively hoppy, deliberately well balanced, and highly drinkable India Pale Ale brewed with 100% locally grown Cascade hops from family owned farms in Ontario and Western Quebec. Keep cold and enjoy fresh. So there you go. What did you What did you pull out there? You got the Trash Panda. I love the name. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's it's hazy. Hazy. It's, it's good. Uh, I think. Have you guys had this on your uh, podcast before? We had the Wiley Wolverine. Nah, is totally that, different. That's though. a different different company. Yeah, that's, that's Parallel Forty Nine. That's over on the mainland there. Oh, I've had it in the Curling Club. Yeah, I never on the show. I'll have to. I can't actually say I've seen the hazy in the stores here, but I'll have to have a look out for it because I'm pretty. I've got. I'm, you know, I'm definitely weak on the like. It's the northeastern hazy IPAs that are good, but I, I don't know about you, Corey, but I might be more into the hazy pale ales now. Oh. Not okay. quite as killer hop to them, or I mean, they have right. as much of the like the the hop nose, but not quite as much of the killer bitter bitterness. Right? Yeah, so. yeah. No, I, I'm Ooh. a fan of that too. I used to all I used Ooh. to just love the bitterness. I loved like it tasting like a bar of soap, but <laughs> I'm definitely like preferring like I like the the New England IPAs are, are definitely my choice right now. It's it's the choice of the trades Canada wide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the problems that I noticed on my, you know, I wasn't really on my FI journey until like the last sort of five years. So it took me a while to get things figured out as well. I was lucky that I didn't, I I mean, I spent a ton on cars, but they were like cheap cars. I was a, I was a Volkswagen guy. So it was like pretty easy to fix a 1982 Volkswagen rabbit. Like I did every job on that car. No, what I was going to say was uh, one thing that I've noticed from being in the trades, you know, I've been in there for 20 years now is a lot of my coworkers, and I don't think this is unique to the trades at all, but they're not great with their money. They make a good living wage, but they spend what they earn. They live beyond their means. Uh, I've worked lots of overtime. I do out-of-town work. I've worked overseas. There's lots of extra pay that comes with that additional work. It's not a typical nine-to-five. It's not a typical salaried position. There's, you know, It fluctuates. Uh, you can speak, Corey, of, of whether yours is similar or not, but the general thing is, is it's about owning toys. And like you brought up earlier, the one-upsmanship and it's like, check out my stuff. And it now where I'm at with sort of the understanding of financial independence and, and finances in general, it's really hard because I see people living beyond their means and it's, it's difficult. And I'm sure it's not just the trades, but it's my experience. And what have you seen from your coworkers and friends that are, are in industry with you, Corey? No, I definitely agree. Like it's the general consensus consensus is the the guy who dies with the most junk wins, basically. <laughs> toys, toys, not junk. Toys, come on. But it is right, junk. Right, it is right. Junk. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd say, like I don't know where I'm working currently. There's not a lot of like guys with a bunch of flashy toys or anything. But I definitely noticed like other jobs where. Yeah, the guys like the, the, they don't pick one hobby. It's like they, they got the <laughs> the four wheeler, they got the boat, they got the classic car, dirt bikes, anything with with wheels and an and a motor. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and then you know, plus then you need to get the big shop to to store all this stuff, and so you need a big property, and then so your real estate costs go up, and and I almost fell into that too, like working on a duster in the middle of the winter, trying to replace brake lines when you got this like four foot long brake line that you're trying to bend up and you're trying not to scratch the paint in this single car garage. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. And, and it's part of the reason why I got rid of the duster because I just didn't have room to work on it. And I yep. wasn't ready to buy a bigger house with a bigger garage. Cause I like, that's another hundred grand or whatever, yep. probably even more in this crazy market now. But yeah, yeah, it just it leads to all these other costs, the insurance to insure all these things like motorcycles, like you got a street bike that's got a big engine in it, you're paying, I don't know how much for insurance on that stuff. Tools, like, 
not so much in 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 my line of work but like you look at like any like mechanics or heavy equipment mechanics i remember there was a machine shop i used to do work for he had this mac toolbox that he had a fifth it was a fifteen thousand dollar toolbox the toolbox that's the key part the box. the box yes not the contents not just the contents red <laughs> it's this red sheet metal thing on caster wheels like and he was so proud of this thing. He didn't want to get it scratched. So he kept it in his office. So anytime he needed a tool, he had to walk like 20 feet to go into his office and grab a tool out of his toolbox. And then eventually he's like, well, this is dumb. I should roll it out into my shop. But then he built a like plywood closet to like cover the toolbox so that it wouldn't get damaged. I'm like, this, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But like you see that in like a lot of, mostly like auto mechanic garages where they have like, it's, it's just, you're, you're basically comp. Well, I don't know. It's compensating for some, but it's like <laughs> the guys have like $20,000 or 50,000. Like, I don't know. I, I might be even underestimating by this point, like the, the prices seem to just keep going up, but they got these amazing toolboxes with oh. like airbrushing on them. And yeah. like, oh, yeah. you can get, you can finance these things. I have a buddy wow. who financed this snap on toolbox. Like, and then you can get trade if once you're tired of your your toolbox you trade it in and get a new one like it's turning into a car now like so it, it, ah, wow. i got i got a couple of questions first i think uh some people in the trades have to buy their own tools right and then the the next thing i was gonna say my understanding is that tools don't really hold their value very well so you might be able to get some decent stuff on the secondhand market is that true or not I'll weigh on that first and then Corey can think about his response. A lot of the tools that I need to own are more precision type hand tools. Mm. And if you've got a set of snap-on sockets or snap-on offset wrenches or combination wrenches, those are still going to hold their value because A, snap-on is a lifetime guarantee. So it's, it's still as good as the day you bought it from that point of view. I think what you're referring to is perhaps the trades, you know, like carpentry or places that where you need a lot of um, power tools and they're upgraded every year. Like every year, Milwaukee has a new tool or DeWalt has a new tool. So I definitely, for everything at home, it's all used tools. Like my chop saw, my, you know, the, the table saw, it's all, it's off what I can find on the classifieds by as high quality as I can for the lowest cost I can find, right? Uh, from a professional point of view, I need to use high quality tools just because it says it's got a lifetime guarantee. When I'm on the top of a mountain with a helicopter, having it break is not an option. <laughs> I need the best quality, right? So those kind of tools hold their value, but you know, the electronic, the trendy, the, the new saw, the new things don't hold it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Corey? Do, I have to supply my own stuff to you or what do you see from that side of for you? Yeah, I, I've always had to supply my own stuff. Uh, so for me, like I, I probably only have about a couple grand wrapped up in my tools, maybe 2,500, including my toolbox. The most expensive things are the measuring tools, like the micrometers, the yep. verniers, that sort of totally. thing. Totally, yeah. Same um, with me is like multi as, I've got to have to have a fluke multimeter that's worth right. 500 bucks, you know, like, yeah. And, and I'm, I might have to get one of those eventually too. Cause I, I do travel as a service tech and I'm mostly doing mechanical stuff right now, but uh, they are wanting to train me and do more electrical. So then, yeah, that'll yep. be more, more cost. And yeah, you want to get, you don't want to have some Canadian tire, $20 multimeter <laughs> no. when you're checking this 600 volt panel. Like it's, it's yeah. not, not safe. Yeah. But yeah, it, as far as like ratchets and snap-on stuff goes, it's not as common in my line of work. Um, maybe more if you're like a uh, millwright working in a factory and stuff. A lot of times they'll have their tools paid for though sometimes. For me, I'm good with just buying a ratchet set from from Canadian Tire, getting the Mastercraft, the one with like the lifetime warranty. You break yeah. the ratchet, sure, you'll break a ratchet every once yeah. in a while, but you just take it back. And you're good, but it's not like I'm working on a on a machine on a mountain like like you are. It's I can always just run out and, and grab a new one. It's not a big deal. Let's finish this thing up with uh, a bit more of a car focused discussion because let's face it, we're all pretty bad at buying used cars, cars in general. I'll let the economist tell us a little bit about his car story. This was a few, going a few years back now, where the one you helped me uh, fix on the side of the road. Yeah, there's that one. And then what was the one? The, my favorite is the Nissan 
truck from like early circa early nineties that he That's found. Oh, that one. Yeah. So we found more money in the glove box than the truck. Then he paid for the truck. Like this is fantastic nice. stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Plus some tools and a $20 Canadian tire multimeter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, but, else, what else did you the, own? What else did you own? The axle did fall off and I had to call up the mechanic to help me uh, <laughs> bolt it back together. <laughs> yeah, that did happen. But you've owned a few gems, uh, you know, a few years ago that I think we're lucky here on the West Coast because older cars just last a little bit, bit longer. They're not For exposed sure. to the, the harsh winters of Ontario. The salt. The salt. I don't think they use salt in the roads anymore back there anymore. Do they? No, they definitely now. use salt. Oh, do they? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's salt. It's terrible. So you're not finding that many 20-year-old cars on the road because they just can't last that long unless they're really well looked after type thing. But the economist nailed it down with some great values. Yeah, I, I've owned so many, I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it was ever more than two grand that I paid, except for a couple. Okay, here's the question. Here's the question to yeah. the panel. Cheapest vehicle you ever bought that was road legal and you could drive for, let's call it six months, without major repairs. Like it, you could, it, was drive, it was turnkey condition. Not the truck. Not, not the, the truck. 50, not, not the fifty dollar truck. <laughs> well, <laughs> it didn't last six months. <laughs> well, there you go. So maybe the minivan. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think I paid three hundred for that. That's a sweet deal. Yeah. Nice, Corey. Well, see, I don't know. I'm I'm going to be disappointing here and say that like I've had a pretty brief automotive history, and uh, my daily drivers I've actually bought new. And um, interesting. So. So my first car, it was a 2002 Neon, but it was actually a leftover. Like this would have been when the 2004s were coming out. Mm. So I, I managed to get a pretty good deal on that. My dad actually he used to have a side gig. Uh, he called himself the automotive negotiator. Oh, I like just, it. He he loved the game of negotiating with salespeople because because he was a salesperson himself after he stopped doing the uh, the appliance repairman thing, and he just loved screwing with salespeople and knowing all the mind games they were playing. So when we went, like he was always for buying, even though my parents were very frugal or still are frugal, uh, he he always liked buying new cars. And um, yeah, he he took me into the dealership. There's this car had been sitting on the lot for like a year, year and a half. And we we dickered back and forth and got to the point where like they wouldn't move anymore on price. And he basically said, okay, well, we'll go find a better deal somewhere else. And, and as we were walking out the door, the sales guy said, well, if you want to play those games, we're not going to give you a call tomorrow, you know, until you come back in. And I'm looking at my dad like, dad, I really like that car. I want to buy that car. I don't care how much it costs. He's like, just trust me, son. And <laughs> I, I go to work the next day. I come home and my dad's like, hey, so uh, the dealership called. I'm like, what? He's like, I want to go pick up your car. I'm like, oh, okay. So the system works. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> uh, so that car, it was out the door, like taxes, everything in. It was like 14.7. So pretty cheap for a new car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my current daily driver, it's a 2015 Mazda 3, which I also bought new. I had looked at the used stuff because I, I wanted a Mazda 3, um, but this was the new generation. I liked the looks of the new generation. And I was doing the math and it looked like I was only really saving myself like two grand. If I, for each year that I went older, I was saving myself, which I mean, is a lot of money, but I don't know, for me, I, I don't know. I don't know how to justify this, but no, uh, well, cause that's going to be my first question. So think about it. <laughs> I know. I know. So, so I've looked at now at what my car is worth five years later and I've lost half the value. So right. I, right. So but I, I paid, I, they were asking relevant how much it is. It's just like a percentage. Okay. Thing. All right. So I've like. lost 10 grand over five years. So like two grand a year. Um, but I haven't had to spend anything on maintenance. It's interesting that, that your value went down at the same value that you calculated buying a used car would. Yeah. It's yeah. It's kind of on par. It's how right? it works, right? Yeah. It's it's how it works. And for me, like I'm I'm pretty I'm a bit of a perfectionist or OCD with my cars, and I feel more comfortable just owning it from new and I'll I'll drive it till 
the wheels fall off. Like with my neon, I owned it for 12 years. Yeah. So because I'm owning them long-term, I don't yeah. feel as bad about buying new. I, I definitely, I got a pretty good deal. It was 21 grand taxes, everything in for this car. Um, so as far as buying new, you could do worse. It's still not optimal, but uh, for me, like, especially with the salt, the rust being such an issue, um, I like stick shift cars. I was worried about people just grinding gears or whatever. That's just my personal preference. I get it oil sprayed every year because I, I just, the salt just eats away at cars. And, and, you know, you could argue the, the environmental issues of oil spraying. There's a little bit of drippage that happens for a week after you get it done. But there's also the cost and to the environment of that car sitting in the, in the junkyard when it's yeah. rusting away. So yeah, totally. I don't know. It's it's one of those conundrums, but uh, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you you've chosen new. You're not going to answer your own question. My question? Yeah. Oh yeah, what's cheapest what's your cheapest case? car you got? Oh, my own question. Yeah, the cheapest car I ever got. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a I had a run of cars actually. They were the um, Chevrolet Citation four door hatchback gotta be up there with the ugliest cars they put out in the 80s there was a lot of ugliness in the 80s these were ugly cars but they had a nice 2.8 v6 in them that thing had some pull 300 bucks got me one that was rust free low kilometers first car i ever owned with power windows first so it wasn't it wasn't a base it wasn't a base you don't drive base (laughs) <laughs> <You're> gonna, <laughs> Corey, Corey, you've got to see the video that the economist showed me a couple of years ago we'll put it in the show notes yeah and it's like these british uh salesmen salesmen they're salesmen right so they get cars as the perks and they're like they would compare themselves about what trim level their company car had right and it's like <laughs> good salesman never drives a base model <laughs> <laughs> it's classic it's classic 80s too they're all like classic 80s british yeah. cars it's perfect yeah we'll put You'll that see in. some ugly ugly cars in there too it's entertainment yeah but no this was not a base i don't know if they had different models of the citation they were all pretty garbage but hey 300 bucks and i drove it out of there and it ran for a long time yeah i've gotten better at cars i run 20 year old cars now or or try to keep them running and we haven't really given any super useful car advice on this show. If people are still listening, uh, Corey can give some good rationale for owning new. Do you pay cash or do you finance quick answer there? Uh, yeah. So for cash, you'll typically get a bit of a, a, a discount. I think I it was a thousand or 2000 buck discount on my Mazda when I bought it, even though they'll say it's 0% financing. It's there's not, there's a, something built in not. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if you're buying new, drive the wheels off it, like you said, right? That's what makes yeah. that that work, right? If you're if yeah. you're buying used, and this is a discussion too, is buying used, is I'm kind of the fan where I look at a used car going, I want to buy something that's about five to seven years old because it's still in sort of the low hundred K area where it's had that you know the 100k maintenance is you, a lot of times the big one where a timing belt gets done all the brakes get done the clutch like there's a lot of things that happen around there so if you're in the like the 120 to 150 range those cars are still good they're going to give you good life until around 200 200 plus that's when you start finding i don't know you you're in your experience too but i've always found when you hit 200 there's some suspension work that needs to be done bushings are beaten out by then you know uh, cv joints like there's just the wear and tear adds up over the kilometers, right? I mean, we're not talking about regular maintenance. Any car is going to need a muffler. It's going to need brakes. It's going to need tires. It's going to need a battery, right? It's so it's, it's finding that sweet spot for me is that six or seven year old car that you're paying a little less on. You can run safely and cheaply for five years. And before it depreciates too much, you can get a little bit of return from your investment there and then sort of cycle through. That's kind of the program I've been running to save myself money on cars and, and then DIY what you can, right? So what's your net loss mm. over that five years purchase price, not maintenance? Rate. Okay, good question. Um, this is I'm just pulling this out of the air because I haven't got a spreadsheet yeah. on this. I'm not a spreadsheet guy. I've said that before. But we bought our Nissan Pathfinder for $10,500. It's a 2003 Nissan. We bought it. Oh, what year are we in? 2021. We bought it in 2014. 2015 around there so it was a little older than usual but i wanted 
the SUV for for reasons. Um, market value today, I mean, I'm sure I'll get hate mail on this too, yeah. but maybe like four grand. You know, it's it's in fairly good condition. Yeah. That's kind of ballparking it. So yeah, six grand over six years. Six years. So it's a grand a year so, instead of two grand. So a year. it's half. Yeah. Interesting. But then, how much do you pay in maintenance and parts and stuff? Not that much. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> no, that's no. But what about the himself. mental? What about the mental cost of not knowing if the car will like make it to work? What about that? Oh, yeah, well, when you work from home, you don't have that <laughs> mental cost. <laughs> no, it's you know, it's funny you mentioned that because it's one of the reasons I do have BCAA. Like, why does a mechanic have BCAA? But it's it's for the times when I'm out of town and my wife is driving an older vehicle and. Once with these current vehicles, once she's been stranded because the clutch slave cylinder went on her. Oh, one thing I do want to mention too, like if you don't want to pay for CAA or BCAA or whatever, I don't know if you guys have it, but the Triangle MasterCard with Canadian Tire has roadside. Yep. If yeah, like I don't know if you have to get like the the black one. Like there's the it's the free anyway. Triangle. It's free anyway. The World Elite. Yep. Yeah, but you I might not qualify. The, the Triangle work. I, yeah, well, you have to lie about your your wage, your salary. <laughs> if you make eighty grand a year, or say that you do, you can get the World Elite Triangle, which has card. roadside assistance, free free roadside assistance. Absolutely. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for the beer, Corey. Yeah, thank you very much for the beer. Well, thanks we're for gonna have me. Yeah, we're gonna drink the accountant's one because he didn't bother to show up, so that's fine with yeah. us. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we appreciate you having them on the show and uh, chatting with us. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody else for listening to the FI Garage. We promise we won't talk about cars or trades next time. We'll get back into the deep into the finances, but it's great to have somebody on the show that's also on their FI journey and uh, and has some experience and something I can relate to. I just got to say, I'm really happy that I found this community. I, I've been like living my life as this frugal weirdo and felt kind of like an outsider watching all these people spend all their money and not save for another day. And even though you know what you're doing is right, when you see everybody doing something else, it makes you question what you're doing. And up until a year ago, I had no idea that the Canadian FI community was as big as it was. I, I had read Mr. Money Mustache like five years ago and read through all his blogs, all his articles, I was like, yep, yeah, that was great. And I, then a year ago, I was listening to Rational Reminder. They mentioned Scott Rickens. He talked about the Choose FI community. I found the Choose FI community, which brought me here. And it just makes me so happy that I have, you know, like-minded people to talk about this stuff with. It is freaking cool, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. I hope uh, we can have beers in person someday. Totally. After, you know. FI Garage Cross Country Tour 2021. Nice.